Welcome to Unity of Fairfax, a positive path for spiritual living and spiritual center for education, practice, and service in Northern Virginia. We hope you find inspiration in this week's message. So here's a question, and I'll answer it. <laughs> but I'm going to share with you the question anyway. Who's welcome at Unity of Fairfax? Everyone, yes, you all know the answer. And I like to follow that up with the phrase that all people are welcome, all behaviors are not. And I say this because we want to always encourage healthy relationships grounded upon mutual respect and appreciation. Now, this doesn't mean that we are all in agreement about everything. It simply means that as long as our dialogue is respectful and our behavior honors personal boundaries, then again, we can truly meet and enrich one another simply with the gift of our presence. So, so far today, we've acknowledged Hispanic Heritage Month. And did I mention that there's great food in the atrium for after a service? All right, food is very important. I want to acknowledge something that's happening tomorrow as well. Tomorrow, Monday, October 10th, the nation observes Indigenous Peoples Day and our office will be closed in observance of the holiday. This is a time for us to honor the contributions of indigenous peoples to our country and to learn about the history and the present of Native Americans. Now consider this. When Europeans first arrived in North America, there were approximately 500 sovereign Indian nations uh, that were prospering. They each had their own government, culture, language, However, due to war, disease, and genocidal practices of the American government, this reduced the number of the indigenous population from more than 1 million to about 300,000 in the year 1900. Now, since then, the numbers of American Indians and Alaska Natives has grown to over 5 million. But numbers don't tell stories. They simply serve as a data point on a way on the way to greater knowledge and understanding. So I encourage us all to invest time in learning about the multiple cultures that comprise Native America. And for those of us here in the District of Maryland and Virginia, which those of you at home we refer to as the DMV, and no, it has nothing to do with your car. <laughs> if you haven't yet visited the Smithsonian National Museum of the American Indian, I encourage you to do so. And for those of you who live outside of the area, I encourage you to visit the sites and learn about the indigenous peoples of your areas. There are great resources online for this. But I want to come back to our series and ask the question, who else is welcome at Unity of Fairfax? Well, that would be our interfaith partners and friends who are all sharing the same vision with us of a world that works for everyone. So this is the third week of our nine-week annual Unity Awakening series of Sunday talks in small groups in which we lean into the work of a Unity author or someone whose work aligns with Unity teachings. This year, we are studying Unity in World Religions by Unity Minister Reverend Paul John Roach as a way of deepening our understanding of Unity principles while at the same time recognizing connections and shared teachings with other world traditions. We do this in the hybrid metaphysical group on Sundays and in a Zoom-only group on Thursday evenings. Information about both of these is available on your website. 
So last week, we looked at the relationship between unity and Judaism and landed on a scripture referred to as the Micah Mandate, which says, He has told you, O mortal, what is good, and what does the Lord require of you but to do justice, to love kindness, and to walk humbly with your God. Now, we know that there are a lot of people who learn best when the instructions are in the positive. So, yes, do justice, love kindness, and walk humbly with your God. We also know that some people learn best when the instructions are in the negative. And the great Rabbi Hillel put the teaching in this way. He said, that which is hateful to you, do not do unto your fellow." This is the whole Torah. The rest is commentary. Now go and learn. So put another way, if you don't want it done to you, and this is requires some finger shaking, don't do it to others, and please don't do it to yourself. You are too important and too valuable to treat badly. You are a creation of the Almighty. So recall that in our first talk in the series, we explored the relationship between unity and Christianity. Last week was Judaism. Now this week, let's look at the third of the, and final of the three monotheistic Abrahamic faith traditions, Islam. So just recap for those of you who may not know uh, a lot of information about Islam, and I'm going to make it fast because there is a lot to know and we're not going to cover it all. Um, the, Islamic, the Abrahamic traditions are those that worship the God of Abraham, including Christianity, Islam, and Judaism. Now, Abraham was a patriarch and a prophet and is mentioned extensively in the Bible and the Quran. Jewish tradition claims that the 12 tribes of Israel are descended from Abraham through his son Isaac and Jacob, whose sons formed the nation of the Israelites in Canaan. Islamic tradition claims that the 12 Arab tribes, known as the Ishmaelites, are descended from Abraham through his son Ishmael in Arabia. So Christianity split from Judaism in the first century of the Common Era and spread widely after being adopted by the Roman Empire and became a state religion in the fourth century. Islam was founded by Muhammad, peace be unto him, in the seventh century of the Common Era and widely spread through early Muslim conquests. The word Islam itself means peace through submission to God's will. And what we would say in unity, God's will is absolute good. And the word Muslim comes from the Arab word meaning one who submits. There are roughly 1.8 billion Muslims in the world, all over the world. And Islam, like Christianity and Judaism, is not monolithic, but rather has evolved rich and beautiful and varied traditions and interpretations like all the Abrahamic traditions. The two major branches, and not the only ones, but major, are Sunni and Shia, which have multiple schools of thought within them as well. And many Unity students are familiar with the mystical approach to Islam known as Sufism. The beloved poets Rumi and Hafiz are well-known representatives of Sufism. So today is a really special day. I want to get to the good part. Uh, I'll be dialoguing this morning with two friends of mine, uh, Afnan Hirula and Savim Kalyanchu, representatives of our environmental partner organization, Green Muslims. And we're going to talk about the five pillars of Islamic practice. And in this discussion, you will hear a lot about what unity teaches as well. So ladies, would you come forward and join me on the platform? I'll, I'll stand here. Uh, Afnan, you can come to the podium. And Savim, if you would use your handheld microphone. Leah, let's welcome our guests.
All right, and let's make sure your microphone is on. Now, um, let me do one oh, no. little magic thing. Oh, there you go. You're good. You did your own magic. So, brief introductions to Vim. Would you share a little bit about yourself and your role with Green Muslims? Absolutely. Thank you, everybody, so much for the invitation. My name is Sevim Kalyonju. I am the executive director of a nonprofit organization here in the, the, the DMV um, known as Green Muslims, where we're trying to get our um, Muslim community to be more involved with the environment, to be environmentally active, and to connect their responsibility towards the earth and relationship with the, the earth, the, with nature, to their faith specifically. Thank you. Hey, I'm Afnan Kayrula. I am a environmentalist by passion and by training. And um, I found the connections with spirit and environmentalism some years ago. And then I found Savim and Green Muslims. And I thought to bring my, my expertise to our organization. I'm very happy to be here. Well, great. We're very happy to be here. So I wanted us to have just a quick dialogue about five pillars of Islam, which are amazing and rich and deep. And I encourage uh, those of us who are non-Muslim to go online and study and learn, or even better, just ask some of our Muslim guests or friends, hey, what do you mean by that? Or what, can, what would you like me to know so that I can be a better student and partner in creating world peace through these wonderful steps? So the first step is Shahada, the Declaration of Faith, which reads, there's no God but God, and Muhammad is his messenger. Would you care to share a word or two about that? Absolutely. Uh, first of all, before I say anything, I am not an Islamic scholar. Um, I was born and raised here in the United States, and, and the diversity has very much influenced my understanding of my own faith. So you are hearing Sevim's interpretation of her faith with the intention of pleasing God. Um, shahada. La ilaha illallah wa Muhammad Rasulullah. There is no God but God, and Muhammad, peace be upon him, is the prophet of God. Um, I am going to quote an old friend who once pointed out to me when I was a teenager that there is no aspect in these five pillars of Islam that compares to this one. At some point in your life, you may not be able to follow through on any of the other aspects, the other pillars of Islam, but the one that always holds, the one that makes you a Muslim, the one that matters is this one, that faith in God. And from my own perspective, growing up in the deep south with some, some narrower uh, religious interpretations around me that clearly stated that I was doomed to hell because of a different faith, I, um, I was taught to emphasize the there is no God but God. Um, that the fact that Muhammad, peace be upon him, is the prophet was an important lesson in that it was he was a prophet. He is not God. That needs to be understood by, by Muslims as well. But then also to be a Muslim is to understand that he is a prophet who is here to teach us, who was here to teach us about God and how we should be living. Which relies very much with what we teach in unity, our first, prof, our first principle. We have five, too, so this really works. There's a nice tie-in. And our first principle is the nature of God is altogether good in a very much, uh, in a very similar interpretation, and how we view Jesus is not God, and yet a, a master teacher, a way shower. Uh, if not, anything you want to add? Oh, Sifim so said it very well, but I, that's what really distinguishes Islam from the uh, other Abrahamic religions is our belief in Muhammad as a prophet to the people and the final of the prophets. 
Beautiful. Let's look at the next pillar, Salat. Muslims are called to pray five times a day. What can you tell us uh, as, as non-scholars? What does this mean to the average uh, Muslim adherent? Yeah, absolutely. So our Salat, it's uh, absolutely mandatory, and we believe that it's the first thing that we're asked about when we enter the grave and, you know, our judgment starts. And uh, it's it's absolutely mandatory, but it's our daily conversations with God. It's kind of like walking into work and having those necessary meetings with your boss and, like, constructive feedback, and you're doing great. They're, like, daily check-ins, and they're also, to me, I see them as times to just slow down and quiet. Mandatory timeouts. <laughs> yeah. uh, I have a lot of thoughts, so you may have to cut me cut me short on this. Um, I am not going to start quoting um, too much from our faith, but it is said that uh, the Prophet Muhammad, peace be upon him, was first told that we were supposed to do how many prayers a day? Not five. People will often ask us, how do you do five prayers a day? And it, it can be hard when that's not the norm. Work and school get in the way. I'm not going to deny it, but we were supposed to do a thousand. And then God kept cutting it back down to five. You sort of like so, took a plea. So we try not to complain too much about it. And you can always do more than five, too. Um, I remember as a child, I mean, prayer, I had always understood it as something from the heart. And salat is prayer, but it is also a physical prayer. It involves bowing, prostrating to God, it, physical motion. You have to cl cleanse yourself before you do it. So it's pretty complex, and it can be challenging in a culture that does not encourage it, does not provide the facilities. Um, although, again, I've been around for a while. Things are getting much easier in this area. God bless everyone who, who strives to you know, open, open doors for people of all different faiths. Um, but I remember as a child having trouble with this prostration. I mean, I was taught that God was everywhere. God, they say in Islam, is closer to you than your jugular vein. Why do I have to bow before God? This was, as a child, I really questioned this. I thought my prayer should be in my heart and didn't need that physical aspect. It took maturity, growing up life, to realize how much I needed that aspect as well. And interestingly enough, it was my experience with yoga that helped me understand yeah. the importance of the physical prayer as well. So it, I realize now it's not just prayer, because you can always pray to God. You can make dua, personal prayers, all the time. But the physical aspect is also important, that you go out of your way, you stop everything, you make these motions, and you become totally engulfed in that prayer. At least that's what we, the aim is. There are beautiful tie-ins with unity as well. Our fourth principle says we become aware of our awareness through, uh, with God through prayer and meditation. And what has uh, impacted many of us as well is the uh, idea and the ways in which we literally embody our prayer. So it's not just some uh, cerebral activity, but it becomes something we feel deep in our bones. And a practice like yoga uh, it makes a wonderful entree, and it's wonderful to have that, that sort of connection. This notion of praying five times a day, I don't know uh, any day when I've only prayed five times. You know, if you, if you watch the news or if you have a family, you probably have more than five opportunities to pray. And what I recognize and appreciate about the practice is let's make this a discipline to really keep us focused on our creator. Afnan, anything you want to add to that? No, just in the end of the day, you know, our limbs, they do serve as, like, witnesses to us and our obedience and our prayer, on, you know, when it comes at the, in the hereafter. 
Yeah, we're taught that the body we're taught that the body matters too, so that should be a part of the prayer. Absolutely. All right. Well, speaking of the body, let's talk about fasting, the idea of psalm. How would you highlight and what would you like people to know about the experience of, of Ramadan fasting? Oh, where to begin? <laughs> it's it's not as bad. It's not it's not bad. It's actually, you know, people do ask like, how do you do it? It's so long, and how do you go all day without food? But it kind of teaches us that um, we indulge in far more than we actually need, and we can survive on so very little and thrive and get through our work day and be okay and kind of. It encourages simplicity in this life. Actually, when I was back here in Ramadan fasting and standing up here with Reverend Russell, you made a really great point that I just loved. And we were talking about um, Earth Day and environmentalism, recycling, reducing, and kind of Ramadan really gets you into that spirit of reducing and recycling and just being very minimalist. And um, it's a very spiritual act. It's very beautiful. Anything else? A uh, couple more thoughts. I mean, people do worry about what if it's not safe or healthy for you to fast all through the daylight hours, and the answer is simple. You don't do it. You don't put your, your health at risk with fasting. This is for those who, who are physically fit to do so, and it's just fascinating how nowadays we're hearing more about the benefits of fasting. Um, I mean, I wish I'd heard this stuff decades ago would have made it easier for me, but now it's coming out that, that God has a reason for all of these teachings. Well, there's so much beauty in it, and it ties in with our unity teaching during the Lenten season as we prepare for Easter, in which we encourage people to fast from negativity, where we watch our words. So we're not being, so we're being very mindful and sensitive. Are our words building up or are our words tearing down? And the other thing I really appreciate about the fasting component, and we see this in other faith traditions as well, it's a universal, is that it really helps to build empathy and compassion for those who are less well-off and opens our hearts to, the, to be compassionate and to understand that we are definitely all connected to one another. And this ties into the next pillar of, of Islam, zakat, almsgiving. And what would you have us know about this idea of, of sharing 2.5% of our savings or wealth or 1 40th of our, of our net worth in sharing? How does, how does that idea of charity uh, show up in your lives? Yeah, so I, it, this is a really interesting one because, you know, like fasting, you, you can only fast if you're physically capable. And with zakat, it's only mandatory if you are not in debt. I, I feel that a lot of people might be able to relate. Student loans, that counts as a debt. I was there. Yeah. <laughs> so it's, you know, it's encouraged, we're encouraged to not be in debt and to pay off our debts before we start paying our zakat. And that's when it becomes mandatory. And it's, it's very, I was thinking about it yesterday. Um, and it's kind of a way to re prevent, you know, having this mandatory no loopholes, no tax loopholes. And um, with the IRS, it's, it, it prevents wealth hoarding. We see a lot of that. It's really saddening, a little disgusting. <laughs> but it's, and it also prevents people from being in debt because you're supposed to give back to the community and it's charity. So so that people don't have to take out loans. 
right. Yeah. Beautiful. Thanks. Uh, Savim, anything you want to add to that? I, I think she touched on what I was thinking. I mean, in an ideal situation, it prevents people from suffering from poverty. Not everyone has to have the same uh, degree of wealth in an ideal Islamic world, but those who have more than they need to survive always, always, always are responsible for those who need more. And uh, in an ideal situation, this is what it provides. Thank you. And Afnan, I really appreciate your comment about prevention of wealth hoarding. You know, when we look around the world today and we see so many people suffering who don't have enough food, who don't have housing, who don't have education, and yet we see where wealth is concentrated and moving forward, I really appreciate this idea of this consciousness that we are really all here for each other, called to care for one another. There's so much in these five pillars about compassion and living a compassionate life grounded in one's understanding of one's relationship to God. That's really beautiful. It reminds me of our teaching around tithing in unity where and in Christianity where the idea is to give one-tenth of one's income as a spiritual practice to where we are being fed. But it... Uh, it, it is a spiritual practice rather than, at least tithing in, in our unity setting, rather than a commandment. There's something about this notion of a commandment which almost says we will all care for each other because we are all here for each other. Um, that's really a beautiful idea. And let's talk about the fifth pillar real quickly, the Hajj, the pilgrimage to Mecca. What would you have us know about that? And has either of you made the Hajj? I, I have not. <laughs> you hear me now? Yeah. Okay. We looked at each other because, you know, we haven't had that experience yet. It is, it is a challenging one. Again, it's something that is expected of all Muslims if they have the means and the ability to do so. And we definitely hope that it will be a part of our lives. There are some people, usually those who live closer or have more connections, that do it repeatedly throughout their lives, are fortunate enough to be able to do so. And then there are those of us that hope that we will manage at least once. Um, and, but I do hear it is an incredibly moving experience. Um, people question the challenges of it. I think everyone I know who's gone on Hajj has come back with a cold. It, it, you know, it, being around that many people for so long, you tend to get sick. And no one, no one has ever complained about it. It becomes such an incredibly moving spiritual experience that that cold <laughs> doesn't matter. And so I look forward to having that experience as well someday, God willing. Yeah, Hajj, like all the other uh, principles in Islam except for the Shahada, it's you do it if you have the means and when you are able to. And um, it's... I would love to learn. I would love to be able to get there one day. And I think it's a very interesting practice because this is a practice that started from our prophet Abraham and his wife, Hajar. Beautiful. And there's something about the idea of pilgrimage. It shows up in all the world's traditions. And even for people who really aren't overly religious, would still enjoy and appreciate and find a call to visit sacred sites in the world because they represent something, they symbolize something, whether that's a connection with a higher power, whether that's connection like with the earth and some of our national parks have beautiful draws that just draws to connect and commune with God as we understand God to be or even God as we don't understand God to be. But that sense of the sacred that the beautiful song you offered us uh, experience that we had or the meditation, the idea of then having that shared experience with others who have had that experience. I know folks who like, we, we 
uh, like I recently visited the Mormon temple before it opened where we were invited. I'm not Mormon. And it was such a rich and beautiful experience. They welcomed us in and shared their tradition with us. And it was special. It was beautiful. And I've had that experience with other places. And I know many people who have walked the, the Santiago in Spain have had that experience. And, and these wonderful pilgrimage experiences happen cross-culturally and bind us all with the sense that there is sacredness that connects us and connects us with our creator. Ladies, thank you so much for this very quick run-through of five enormously valuable spiritual practices. Thank you for reminding us that wherever it is not feasible or possible for an individual, there is in, um, allowance for that. And that all of these principles and all these actions are designed to connect the faithful with their God. So ladies, thank you so much for being with us. So let's give our friends a chat, a round of applause. And uh, welcome to our guests and friends. Our home is your home. Please know that we mean that sincerely. And did I mention there's going to be really good food in the atrium? <laughs> be sure to learn about the connections between unity and Islam, and you'll realize we are far more alike than different. Thank you. Thank you for tuning into Unity of Fairfax podcast. You're welcome to join us live in Oakton, Virginia, every Sunday at 9 and 11 a.m. Or view our live stream services from our website at unityoffairfax.org. We appreciate your donations to support this podcast to make our message of positive, practical spirituality more accessible to all. See you next time.